Now, you know, when it comes to leadership and, uh, you know, being respected, our personal sense of worth, I think our world prizes a couple of things. I think it prizes authority and visibility. Those two things. So let's talk about authority for a second. Whether it's in the realm of politics or the corporate world, community life, uh, our, even our family lives, control is so often what we are after. Uh, it's what we seek. We want to be the boss. You know, have it our way. Be respected. Um, I think that's because control is easier than uh, kind of being an example to people and leading through influence. Uh, influence takes time. Uh, it's subtle. We're not really in control of the timeline. Control is less messy. You know, just, just do what I said. Uh, we're going to do it this way. And so I think in many ways we kind of angle for control or authority. Uh, we think we're going to find some security or self-worth in that. If, however, we can't get authority, I think we often will go for visibility. Uh, that is available without limitation because of the internet, because of social media, blogs, tweets, the Instagram culture. Be seen as much as possible, as often as possible. Get as many views and shares and likes, comments. This is validation for us. You know, so it's a scenario where if we do something significant, if something meaningful happens in our life and it's unseen, we don't tell people about it, we can often find that it feels less significant because nobody saw it. Uh, of course, that's not true. It's significant in and of itself, but we are in a climate where being seen really is, is almost seen as a prerequisite for something being fully meaningful. Now, this isn't true for everyone, but it's definitely a trend in our culture. Our world prizes authority and visibility, and this perspective has worked its way into the church, into our faith life. Leadership in the church in America, in the West, uh, in many uh, examples, in many cases, has become kind of domineering or controlling or competitive or authoritarian in tone, or if none of those things, just Christian leaders feel like they just have to talk constantly in order to be you know, relevant or valued. Um, it also shows up in our personal faith lives. It's kind of like if our relationship with God isn't documented or sort of made visible on social media, then it's somehow of less value. Like we're all making Netflix documentaries of our own lives, gathering material for some project we're going to present to somebody else. There's this feeling that we've got to be visible in order to be valued. But how do we square this with what Jesus said about both authority and visibility, because he spoke about this. Uh, there's the time when he's on trial, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, is speaking to him, and he, he says, tell me about your kingdom, and Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, Pontius Pilate was wanting to have a, a, a conversation with Jesus about political power, and Jesus is like, I'm not, that's not the conversation I'm here to have. Um, Jesus was talking with his disciples when they were kind of playing the game of who's going to be the biggest deal, who's going to have the most authority, who's going to be the, you know, the highest rank of the disciples. Jesus said, you know what? The Roman rulers, you see how they lead? They lord their authority over people. They uh, demand control and they just hold people down. It is not going to be that way for you. That's not how we're going to do things. And then, of course, Jesus washed his own disciples' feet which was just a shocking thing. An esteemed teacher of that day would never do that for their followers. In fact, his own disciples were like, whoa, why are you doing this? He was showing a very countercultural outlook on what leadership is. It's about serving. It's about putting yourself last. Jesus' ministry, of course, was very public. 
thousands of people flocking to him to hear his teaching, to seek out healing and things like that. But Jesus had plenty of private moments too. He would pull away from the crowds. I mean, imagine that today, a leader with thousands of people showing up to hear them and they're like, that's great. I'm going to go pray by myself for a couple of days. See ya. Jesus did that. He had those moments. And so there's a question I want us to consider today. And it's what we're going to be driving at for the rest of this message. It's this question here. How should we think about our lives of faith in a world that prizes authority and visibility? How should we think about our lives of faith in a world that prizes those two things, authority and visibility? As I said, this series is called Deeply Rooted because we're looking at our spiritual roots. This is a time of year when we tend to think about family, maybe our own family history. We're thinking about our church family history a little bit. And we're going to think about a time in history today that's not a time that we usually think about. Uh, It's a huge block of church history, but it just doesn't even enter into our minds. But it was an era that juxtaposed two things right next to each other. Power and visibility right next to service and obscurity. There were kind of two expressions of Christianity. One was about power and visibility, and one was about service and obscurity. And there are some powerful lessons for us to learn about how those two uh, tracks turned out. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that historical era, but then we're going to dive into Scripture, as we always do, and see what it means for our personal lives of faith. Last week, if you were with us, you'll remember we talked about this guy. Uh, Here's a picture of him, a statue that was carved. His name was Constantine. He became the Roman emperor in the 300s, early 300s. And Constantine was a huge deal for this main reason. Prior to Constantine, Christians were persecuted. They were on the fringe of society. People thought they were strange. They, were, uh, they had all kinds of challenges. And actually, Constantine's predecessor tried to extinguish Christianity. Uh, terrible persecution. And then Constantine comes to power, and he believes that Jesus is real. And he becomes kind of a Christian and not only makes it legal to be a Christian, begins promoting Christianity. And so for the first time in history, Christianity is legal and normal and okay. And, and so persecu- this era of persecution ended. On a level, that was a good thing. I mean, it's good that Christians were no longer going to be like eaten by animals in arenas for, for entertainment. That was happening. That, that's over, so that's good. But there were some unforeseen consequences of Christianity becoming the establishment, which is w- what it became. First of all, this was the beginning of casual Christianity. There was no such thing as being sort of casually Christian before Constantine. You, you were re- literally risking your life and probably having all kinds of social challenges for being a Christian before the time of Constantine. So that created some, some issues that didn't exist before. But the other side that I really want to focus on is after Constantine, you know what happened? The lines blurred between the government and the church like they never had before. And this went on for like 1,500 years after this point. The political and spiritual authorities were mingled together. And more often than not, it ended up being an unhealthy thing for the church. When you look through church history, think of the Crusades, brutal violence committed in the name of Jesus and for the purpose of taking land. Kings and queens for centuries justifying atrocities because God put them in charge and insisting on interpretations of the Bible 
that serve their political aims, and by the way, only allowing the Bible to be available in certain languages that only the elite could read. That was going on. How about Henry VIII? He's married, he wants to get divorced, the Pope won't let him, and he says, okay, forget you, I'm going to start my own church, the Church of England, I'm going to be the supreme head of that church, and I can do whatever I want, which he did, and then he married Anne Boleyn, which is who he wanted to marry, and then later chopped off her head, but he got to do what he wanted to do. But it was the mingling of this political and spiritual power in this country, the Salem Witch Trials. 19 people hanged for hysteria, essentially. And so when the church has been the government or those lines have been blurred, it has generally not served the cause of Christ well. This, by the way, is why the founders of this country were so vigilant to insist on a separation of church and state because they had seen the danger of the the church becoming the government and those lines being blurred. The, The church in the time of Jesus and the couple centuries after, before Constantine, they would not recognize the pseudo-political shape that the church began to take in the Middle Ages. They, they would, it looked completely different. So how did the church survive this? How did the church survive this era when, when the church on a public level was seeming to just be about power and visibility and control? How did it survive that and retain any connection to what Jesus actually said in the early church? It survived because of what um, historian Mark Knoll calls this. The monastic rescue of the church. The monastic rescue of the church. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Mark Knoll is a renowned historian um, of church history. He's actually a professor at Notre Dame. And he writes about this. Look what he says. For over a millennium, almost everything in the church that approached the highest, noblest, and truest ideas of the gospel was done either by those who had chosen the monastic ways or by those who had been inspired in their Christian life by the monks. And not just the monks, the nuns too. So we're talking about monks and nuns here. I've got a picture. Um, you know, for centuries, this mon- these monastic communities were just a heart of Christian faith. I love those haircuts, by the way. I don't know what you call that haircut, but barbers definitely had jobs in the Middle Ages. I mean, look at those monks. That's amazing. The monastic movement in other words, moving into monasteries, was really a reaction to the success of the church and the problems it created. The retreat of these men and women to monasteries and before the monasteries, just out into the wilderness, into caves, they, they said, you know, this whole kind of political control force version of Christianity that's really taking root after Constantine, we're not really about that. And so they stepped away And they made their life a life of quiet prayer and study of scriptures and serving the poor and taking care of the sick and doing mission work. You know, almost all of the mission work in these centuries, cross-cultural ministry, telling people about Jesus who'd never heard of him, almost all of it happened because of the monks and the nuns. Just going and taking care of people, telling people about Jesus. They became the conscience of Christianity in, in many respects and preserved so many aspects of our faith that we might take for granted. I want to read a little more to you from Mark Knoll. Look what he says. This is our heritage. Look what Mark Knoll says about the the monastic movement for these centuries. He says this. If we read, read the scriptures in our native languages, 
We benefit from the tradition of biblical translation inspired by the monk Jerome. If we sing together the praises of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we follow where the hymn-writing monks Gregory and Bernard of Clairvaux led the way. If we pursue theology, we inevitably find ourselves indebted to the monks Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. If we pray for the success of Christian missions, we ask for a blessing upon enterprises pioneered by the monks Patrick, that's St. Patrick, Boniface, Cyril, his brother Methodius. If we glory in the goodness of God imparted to the created world, we follow where the friar Francis of Assisi blazed the trail. Monasticism monasticism was never a perfect answer to the question of how to live the Christian life. Its impact nonetheless cannot be underestimated, and that impact has been largely for the good. And by the way, for these centuries, the, the, the monastic communities were really kind of the one place women had any opportunity to have a voice in anything. They were not having it in the priestly class, and they were definitely not having it um, in kind of the political class. But there were women who were theologians and uh, in, just incredible minds who, who had a voice in these communities. I want to read one little section from this woman, Hildegard, what she wrote. She, was a, she ran a monastic community in Germany in like the year 1100. She ran it. She's dialoguing via letter with kings. And she writes about God creating our minds and how we can worship him with our minds. Look what she wrote, Hildegard. She wrote, Your creator loves you exceedingly, for you are his creature. And he gives you the best of treasures of vivid intelligence. He commands you in the words of his law to profit from your intellect. In good works, grow rich in virtue, that he, the good giver, may thereby be clearly known. Hence, you must think every hour about how to make so great a gift as useful to others as to yourself by works of justice, so that it will reflect the splendor of sanctity from you, and people will be inspired by your good example to praise and honor God. It's amazing. These are the kinds of works that were coming out of these convents and monasteries. We wouldn't have these kinds of words if they weren't doing what they were doing. Now, I am not saying we all need to go become nuns and monks. Not at all. But I'm saying this, the church in the West, in America, could stand to be a little bit more monkish or nun-like. You see, they lived in an era that prized power and visibility and strength and all that. And these folks, these men and women who were in the monastic communities, they, they didn't go along with that cultural current. And, and in many ways, their lives were more reflective of what Jesus called us to do and, and to believe. So again, the question that we're kind of aiming at here for today that we're going to explore is this. How should we think about our lives of faith in a world that prizes authority and visibility? I'm going to give you three answers drawn from uh, the monastic communities, but mainly from scripture that inspired the monastic communities to do what they did. So here's the first answer. How should we think about it? Number one, think surrender, not power. Think surrender, not power. Turn, uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 16. Uh, we have Bibles on the tables, by the way, if you would like to read along in a hard copy. Uh, Matthew 16, 21, it is on those Bibles on the table, it is on page 669, if you want to turn to that, Matthew 16. Uh, though we will have the scripture on the screens as well, uh, if you want to follow in that way. Think surrender, not power. We're going to see something Jesus said in Matthew 16. Uh, Jesus had been 
walking along talking with his disciples and, and he asked him, what are people saying about me? Who, who do people think that I am? And his disciples are saying, well, some think you're this prophet, some think you're this, some think you're that. And Jesus is listening and then he turns to his disciples and he says, yeah, but what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And this is a dramatic moment where uh, Peter, Jesus' lead disciple, says, uh, you're the Christ, you are the Messiah. I know who you are, you're the Son of God. And, and so Jesus begins to have a conversation with them about his identity. And look what he says, starting in Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, if you're taking notes, I would highlight human concerns. You've got human concerns on your mind. Then Jesus said to his disciples, and then I would highlight this incredible sentence. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Think surrender, not power. Peter was thinking power. He was thinking political power. Because in his mind, and in the minds of many Jews of the first century, the Messiah was going to be a political figure who was going to literally be a king, overthrow Caesar, and, and essentially take over the world. That's the, the lens through which Peter was interpreting this situation. So for Jesus to say to Peter, hey, I'm going to die. It's like, that just does not compute. That's why he kind of freaks out here and says, that's never going to happen to you. Because in his mind, you can't be the Messiah and die. But Jesus is saying, that's not how it's going to go. He wanted in Peter's mind and in ours, this idea of surrender. If you want to be Jesus's disciple, you have to do what? Deny yourself. Deny or give up your expectations. Give up what you want. Lay down your agendas. Give up the pursuit of power, authority, control. Surrender it. Jesus, by the way, was doing this. He wasn't asking us to do something he wasn't going to do. He was about to submit to crucifixion. He says, take up your cross and follow me. The cross is a method of execution. Take up your cross. He's saying, put to death what you think your life should be about and, and all of your personal desires. Give up your right to be in control and follow me instead. I'm going to show you a better way. That's what he's saying. And the monks and the nuns for these hundreds of years, they tried to do this. Did they do it perfectly? No, but they were trying. They were trying to take seriously what Jesus had said because they saw asserting Christianity through force was going to end up being self-defeating because the Christian life is not about force. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ. It's about yielding our life to his priorities, trusting that he's in control and that he's going to guide us and he's going to grow us. It's about serving when we're tired. <laughs> it's about being kind to people that we don't really like. Ever had to do that? It's about 
helping people in tough situations that you might think is totally their fault, but yet they still need help. Loving our enemies, doing good to people who hate us, praying for those who mistreat us. You know, Jesus said all of these things. It's not about authority. It's not about power, control. All that stuff's fleeting. It's about being transformed by Christ and then being his ambassador to the world. And God transforms the world in that way of people who've yielded their life to him. Think surrender, not power. So that's the first lesson in a world that prizes authority and visibility. Here's the second lesson. How should we think about this? Think faithful, not noticeable. Think faithful, not noticeable. This was definitely part of the monastic worldview. They certainly weren't trying to be noticed, uh, but be faithful to the life Jesus called them to. And in their time, it seemed the best way they could do that was to retreat to these monasteries and live out a life of faith and service. And Jesus spoke about the perils of visibility. Flip over to Matthew 6. Uh, if you have your Bible in front of you, Matthew 6, verse 1. Uh, again, we'll have it on the screens. This is part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about visibility in our faith life. Look what he says, Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. I would highlight that whole sentence if you're taking notes. This is like Jesus' thesis in this part of his message. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He's saying God sees your heart. He, He sees your motives for what you do. And if you're only doing what he calls you to do in order to be seen and honored by others, you get no credit for that, essentially, is what it's saying. God doesn't view that as you serving him. He views that as you serving you and using him to prop you up, as many of the people in Jesus' day were doing, the Pharisees and others. And so Jesus continues on to give examples of this. Verse 2, he says, so when you give to the needy, highlight that, He says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Circle hypocrites. As the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be honored by others. Highlight that. This is their reason of doing it. When you give to the needy, don't announce it as the hypocrites do to be honored. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he gives another example, verse five. And when you pray, highlight that, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. There's that word again, circle it. Don't be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Here's the reason, highlight this, to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full which is nothing. That's the point there. They don't get credit for that. Verse six, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He uses the word hypocrites twice. Uh, In English, I think we tend to use that word to mean, you know, you say one thing and you do another. 
Um, that's not exactly the meaning of the, the ancient Greek word used here that we translate as hypocrites. It was a word, the ancient Greek word there, uh, actually has to do with actors. People who were uh, literally doing a drama, playing a part. Jesus is saying, don't act like someone who prays. Don't pretend to be someone who's generous. Don't put on a show for someone else. Actually be generous. Pray because you want to know me and grow in relationship with me. Serve because I've called you to and because you want to show me to the world in the way that you love others. Don't style yourself as someone who prays and serves and gives. That's not what he's after. Actually be that person. This is Jesus' point. And he, and he alludes to this in what we just read. God sees you. Even if no one else sees you, God sees you. And he sees right straight into your heart. You don't have to impress him. You don't have to impress anyone else. God sees what's going on. And God, by the way, works powerfully through people who embrace that attitude and that heart of, of serving the Lord, not because they want to be seen or honored, but because they feel called to do that. And they want to live out the way Jesus said that he wants them to live. People who faithfully serve behind the scenes, secure in God's love for them. God works powerfully. You know, I think about here at Real Hope, we have like 20, over 20 people who serve every week to transform this room from an empty elementary school gym into our worship center. They come every week, and many of them stay even afterwards to join our teardown team and turn this back into an empty elementary school gym. That, that, this is totally out of sight. Nobody else who goes to our church here or comes to the evening service ever sees them do this, but it's just this faithfully serving week in and week out. It's, it's so inspiring for me to watch. I think about our hospitality team who uh, makes the coffee and makes this an inviting place for us every week, you know, so you guys can drink this coffee and stay awake during the messages. That's a really important role that they are playing, and uh, you don't see them do it, but there the coffee is every single week. I think about uh, the folks who put our signs out there so that, you know, people know there's actually a church meeting here. Um, the next-gen ministry, the folks who are at, in our church who are serving literally right now in other parts of this building with our kids and our teenagers, helping them understand who God is and what he wants for their life. They're not in here in this room. They are literally unseen to us right now, but boy, they are doing some incredible work. I think about all the parents in the room and in our church uh, doing the daily work of raising kids in the Lord. Ian spoke about this earlier. I, I thought he did an amazing job of painting this picture. Thousands of conversations over and over faithfully guiding kids toward the Lord. And let's be honest, if you're a parent, of those thousands of conversations, most of them don't feel like they're going very well. <laughs> but yet, yet you keep having them over and over, faithfully guiding and, and, and modeling Christ to these kids. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced the power of a parent faithfully leading their kids toward the Lord over time overshadows the most public, visible famous speaker or author of our day, blogger, tweeter, whoever it is. Because think about this, two generations from now, how many of these famous authors and bloggers and tweeters and leaders are going to be remembered by name two generations from now? Like two, maybe. But how many kids, how many people are going to be living two generations from now that are descendants of people that are in the church today 
raising up their kids in the Lord who raise up their kids in the Lord and continue to share the gospel and speak about Jesus. I mean, it's just an exponential impact. There's no comparison. And that's mostly work done behind the scenes. It's not visible. You know, I think about my wife, Ashley, and what she does. I, you know, I, I often come home from work and I hear about her day and what she's doing. And I just feel like a spiritual lightweight. I'm like, oh my gosh, I had it so easy today. I cannot believe, because even just like the two hours I have with the kids before they go to bed, I'm like, you seriously did eight more hours of this before I got home? I mean, this is crazy. And, and I just think that's just one example. Think of the millions of Christians today and throughout history who've served in this way. We've never heard their names. And they've been praying, serving, helping people. This is the church. This is what the church is about. It's not about power. It's not about visibility. It's not about just the big moments of faith. It's about Christ working in us and through us in the ordinary and in the often invisible. And he changes our lives and he changes lives of others through that. Life in the monasteries for those centuries embrace that outlook. And to some extent, we should as well, at least on a heart level. Again, we'd have to go join a convent or a monastery, but there's something about their outlook that we can benefit from that is lost on American culture in the 21st century. Uh, there's a book I want to recommend. It was recommended to me. Um, Ashley raved about it. I'm going to put a picture of it up here on the screen. Um, it's by an author, Sarah Haggerty. It's called Unseen, The Gift of Being Hidden, in a world that loves to be noticed, unseen. And I want to read a quote from this book that I just think really gets to the heart of what we're talking about. Sarah Haggerty is a mother of six, uh, just incredible writer. She writes this, You may think you're wasting yourself in a hidden corner today, the cubicle on the fourth floor, the hospital bedside of an elderly parent, the laundry room, But that is the place where God meets you with radical love. That is the place where you can give everything at his feet, whether or not anyone else ever proclaims your name, whether or not anyone else ever sees. Only when we hide ourselves in him can we give ourselves to others in true freedom and know the joy of a deeper relationship with the God who created us to know him. Maybe my seemingly unproductive looking up at God life produces awe among the angels. true. I mean, I just think if we could see where God is working and who he is working through in what ways and and put that side by side with how we think he's working and who we think he's primarily working through, we'd just be shocked. I mean, he just does incredible things through people we will never hear of. A third lesson, this is the last one. What we can think about in a world that prizes authority and visibility. Think you and yours, not me and mine. And here's what I mean by that. Think of others and their people, what they need, their hopes, not just me, my people, my needs, my hopes. It's an other focus, which is just at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. It's an other focus, thinking about you and yours, not just me and mine. I'm going to read a passage, a brief passage in Romans. You don't need to turn there in verse 12. It's just an example of kind of how the life of faith is supposed to look. And I just want you to notice how other-focused it is. Look at what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, 9 to 16. He said this, Love must be sincere. 
Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Let that marinate for a little bit. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. I guarantee you, if you're going to live in harmony with people, it means you're not going to get your way. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. I want to just highlight for you all of the language in that passage that's other-focused. Thinking of others and not yourself. Look at all of it. Okay, it's just full of other language. And I love this last word, conceited. Do not be conceited. You can circle that if you're taking notes. Uh, that word in the original language means to be wise in your own opinion. You know, to basically to think too much of how you think. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. Think about others, serve them, hospitality, all those things. And by the way, you shouldn't think too highly of your high thinking. That's kind of the little punctuation he puts at the end of it. Think you and yours, not me and mine. So when you're talking to somebody and they're going through something, instead of thinking me and mine, how does this affect me? You're thinking that other person, you, yours, what do you need? Me and mine goes after power. Me and mine goes after authority, control, respect, take care of myself, take care of my people. Me and mine insists on visibility me and mine clings to my own perspective, my own agenda, my own plans, my own sense of wisdom. That's not the call that Christ has put on our life. That's not denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. We have to think you and yours, and we have to do this in two directions, vertically and horizontally. We think vertically up to God. We say, Lord, your will, what you want, that's what I want to be about. That's vertically. And then horizontally to others, what do you want? What do you need? What are you going through? How can I help you? The monks and the nuns did this. They gave up paths to wealth, paths to marriage, access to power, visibility. God, Jesus did not command us to do any of those things in that way. But they did make some tough choices about their life to follow Christ and to place him at the center of their world. And so I think we can draw some inspiration from that. Like I said, we don't all need to go join monasteries and convents, but it wouldn't hurt the church in America to become a little more monkish because they got it uh, on a level. They got what the heart of our faith is about. And you might not think you have much in common with these monks and nuns living in the Middle Ages, uh, but I do think you should pray about, God, what, in what ways did they embrace and embody something that I'm not? In what ways am I still hanging on to uh, aspects of my identity um, you know, of my job and, and my uh, American citizenship and, and my plans and my dreams. And, and, and Jesus has just been kind of one thing on a shelf among many priorities. You know, uh, in what way is that true? And in what way can I put him right back in the center? I think we can draw inspiration from how they lived. Because they lived out the core of our faith in a very steady way. I'm going to put these three back up just to review the three kind of lessons that we can learn from that era of history and the scripture that inspired it. Think surrender, not power. Think faithful, not noticeable. 
Think you and yours, not me and mine. And, and I think part of that is just acknowledging we live in a culture, you just have to, you have to understand this. America is a wonderful country. I could not be more proud and patriotic to live here. Best country ever. But it is a culture that more often than not thinks power, thinks noticeable, thinks me and mine. And that is fundamentally out of sync with the life Christ called us to. We can enjoy the blessings of this nation and our life here. Uh, God has given them to us, and we should. But we need to think about what is truly the nature of the call that's been put in front of us. And it's yielding our life to him. It's being faithful, even if we're never seen. And it's thinking of others first. It's very countercultural, but it's what Jesus called us to do. So next week, we are going to look at a moment that literally changed history. Not just church history, world history. The Western world would not be at all what it is today without this moment. It is a moment uh, in which the church woke up from its slumber. It directly paved the way for churches like Real Hope to come into existence. And the man God used to bring this moment was a monk. So we're going to look at that next week.